My name is Joel, and I am one of the pastors here. Uh, thankful to have you joining us, as always, on Sunday morning. Um, very thankful to be able to gather together. We're going to be talking about uh, the importance and kind of what takes place when we gather together um, as people of God. And I just think it's, uh, it's not something to take for granted, and I'm excited to do that today. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll hop into our, uh, our message today. God. Thank you for um, bringing us together this morning. I pray that you'd, um, whatever it is that we're, we're in need of this morning, whether it's comfort, whether it is um, uh, to, find, to find joy, um, to find peace, to find hope, to find faith, God, um, I pray that you'd help us uh, to, 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 as we come into your presence this morning through, through prayer, through worship, through communion, um, through studying your word, Lord, I just pray that you'd meet us where we're at, God, today. Um, we pray that uh, you'd, you'd help, help to be with us um, today, Lord, whatever it is that we're going through. And in Jesus' name, amen. So recently on Twitter, I, oh, actually it's called X now. Um, sorry, my bad. Um, I don't know if you guys have any clue what I'm talking about. Um, but uh, some dude on the uh, social media app formerly known as Twitter posted something asking people to respond to his tweet with the worst uh, church services that they'd ever attended. And so as you can imagine, there's some pretty cringy ones. And I found a few that are pretty funny um, and not too depressing. And I thought maybe I'd read a few of those here today. First one, um, pastor had a vision the Lord said he was going to get 5K that morning. Collection plate was passed, no 5K. Passed again, no 5K. Doors of the church were locked. No one leaves until we obey the Lord and give him his 5K. He got the 5K on the fifth go around of the collection plate. Yeah. Yeah, that, um, I, I, and, and growing up in school, that was called bullying, um, I think. So, okay, second one here. Woman stood up and announced that all poor eyesight was being instantly healed and to take their glasses off in faith. Up on the platform, the bass player fell into the drums before people began quietly putting their glasses back on. Thankfully, I wore my contacts that night. <laughs> all right, next one here. A couple of cri Christmas Eve service ones, these last two. Christmas Eve servant. Associate pastor spoke of Herod sending soldiers to kill babies. His take on this was that Herod wasn't a good leader because if he were a good leader, he would have gone himself to be sure the job was done right. <laughs> yeah, think, yeah, if you know the story, you can understand why that would be pretty awkward to hear. Last one, Christmas Eve, a cathedral. The associate priest preached a sermon which consisted of standing in the pulpit with two sock puppets and having them sing Bette Midler's from a distance to one another. I don't even know what that song is, but you can imagine how awful that would be. <laughs> okay, now I bring all of this up today because the passage that we're going to be studying today in, in 1 Corinthians is kind of about worship services that are going off the rails in the city of Corinth, to the point where Paul says this in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. It sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. Can you imagine hearing that? in a church that you were part of, that would be pretty, pretty, pretty crazy to hear that, to think about the fact that when we get together on a Sunday morning, more harm than good is taking place. 
Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of those issues. Actually, it's a big part of this whole, kind of la- almost the entire last section of the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be spending a long kind of time unpacking the different issues that they have in their Sunday gathering, their worship service, whatever you want to call of it, whatever you want to call it, okay? And so today we're going to talk about two primary issues, um, and we'll reflect on them a little bit at the end and maybe think about some takeaways on... Um, what, what it might look like for us to think about what we're doing in our own worship services and how we can avoid some of the issues that are taking place or the types of things that are leading to them, at least, in, in Corinth. Um, so the, the first section today, we're going to hop into this first one right now, um, just jump right in head first, is going to be talking about women and head coverings, all right? It's a little, uh, a little bit of a controversial passage. Maybe you're familiar with it, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16. Now, let me just start by reading it to you all, Okay. Um, verse 1, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. I am so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. But there's one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off um, all of her hair. But since it is shameful for a woman to shave her hair, to have her hair cut or have her head shaved, she should wear a covering. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory. And woman reflects man's glory, for the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. And man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. Okay? Uh, we're reading the NLT right now, um, but I wanted to just put in the literal translation of this uh, passage here, the little Greek one. Um, Therefore, the woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. I read one time somewhere that, you know, as a pastor, when you're preaching, one of the best things you can do is just try to read slowly and compellingly a passage of Scripture, and that is a very good way to preach it in and of itself as people hear it and understand what it's saying. I would say in some passages that's maybe not the case, and this is a good example of that. Um, Okay, as you can guess, this passage is is kind of a contested one. It's a difficult one to understand, and um, sometimes it's used to explain how men and women ought to relate to one another. Now, a little bit of a note real quick here. Um, Last week, we actually uh, talked a a little bit about part of our approach as a church to how we think about men and women in leadership together. And we actually unpacked the the passage in 1 Corinthians 9 as one reason we kind of land where we do with the expression um, of leadership and and, and teaching and stuff like that in regards to men and women that we do as a church. And we used kind of the principles of uh, 1 Corinthians 9 um, as an example um, of how you could uh, uh, um, 
uh, apply that passage, and we do that here as a church. That's actually one reason why we do uh, what we do. Now, I'd encourage you to go back and check that one out. It might be a little bit helpful as we think to think about alongside today's passage. Um, now, obviously, this is, if nothing else, a confusing passage. So, what I want to do is I want to kind of take some, just make some notes on it. Um, all right, and and so some important notes here on the verses, okay? verses specifically from 2 to 16. Now, I apologize. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit on this, but I promise you, not nearly as deep as we could get if, if we wanted to. Um, if you like getting into the weeds on certain passages, you, you know, grab your popcorn. You're going to have some fun here. If not, I, I would urge you to stay with me. It's good to get in the weeds sometimes, even if it makes us think a little bit more than we're used to. I think it's good to be challenged and go deep on things, okay? Um, we're not going to exegete this passage all the way through. It's just too, too, too little time, I think, to do that and to really kind of deal with all the issues. But some of these notes, I think, are helpful, at least, as we kind of work our way through this passage and get into the next part of, of the chapter as well, okay? So first of all, no matter how you read this passage, I think you have to admit the first thing you can say about it is that it's very tough to understand what's going on. Anyone who comes and tells you that they have a lot of clarity about what's going on in this passage, I think probably thinks they're a little smarter than they actually are. (laughs) Um, In reality, we understand very little about what's going on in Corinth. Um, We don't even know for sure what Paul means by the head covering thing. Um, And and clearly, in this time, there's something cultural. There's There's something that the Corinthians and Paul know about that we just don't that is communicated by women wearing or not wearing head coverings and having short or long hair, and it just escapes us. There's a lot of distance between us and, and the, the audience and the writer and just the cultural situation. And Paul's in on it, the Corinthians are in on it, and we mostly are not in on it, and that makes it really difficult. And so if you want to use this kind of as a main plank to build up anything, I think that you, sh- you know, that, that's a little bit <laughs> Maybe not a great idea. I think that there, it's better to start in other passages to really get a, a sense for some of the things that can come up as we talk about this passage. I think humility is a super key. Okay, so that's the first thing I want to point out. Secondly, okay, and this is important, the context for this has nothing to do with home life or marriage or, you know, what women's roles and men's roles should be in a church setting or anything like that. Okay? It solely has to do with something that's happening during the Corinthian church's worship service in regards to something about these head coverings when women get up and pray and prophesy. And so if you want to draw larger implications from this passage, um, then, you know, and maybe we should. I'm not saying necessarily that we shouldn't, um, but the minute, you just have to recognize the minute we do that, we're actually stepping out of the context of this passage and this time and place that's going on, um, and we can get caught up in some circular reasoning. We can say, well, Paul is saying X because I already think this passage is about X, okay? And that's just a bit of a, something you want to be careful of, I think. To say it is about marriage or church leadership or whatever, it's just taking a bit of a leap that Paul is not talking about here, and I just think it's important to make that clear. Third, um, if we do want to make a connection like that, we have to note that it's important that Paul, what Paul's saying here says nothing that would actually limit women from leading or speaking in a church setting, okay? He's actually speaking about what happens when women uh, prophesy and pray. And prophesying, without getting too much into it, because we're not 100% sure exactly what that looked like in the early church, we do know it was something that was done in front of the rest of the church, where you would speak an authoritative teaching or encouragement 
to the rest of the church. All right, so it's assumed actually in this passage that women are kind of getting up and sharing a word in some authoritative way with the rest of the church. Okay, fourth, on this idea of, of head, okay, that's a word that pops up kind of over and over again in the passage. It seems for Paul to be kind of a crucial, uh, crucial word or concept. Now, it's used in several senses in the passage. First of all, it's literally referring to the thing at the top of your body that your eyeballs and your brain are in. Okay? He uses it in a literal sense at times, but then he uses it in a metaphorical sense, right? and that's the part that people kind of argue over. Now, when we think of head in a metaphorical sense in a modern English-speaking context, we're usually thinking of it in a hierarchical or authoritative kind of way out of hand, right? So if I tell you that someone is the head of a company, we are thinking of like the CEO, someone who has a sort of authority over the rest of that company. But that doesn't mean that in Paul's context, in the ancient Near East setting, that uh, for an ancient Jew speaking Greek, that that is what head would have meant. All right? Um, and in, in fact, nowhere in the passage is the word authority used. Uh, the word, Greek word would, would probably be exousia that Paul would use in the passage, except for verse 10, where it really seems like on a literal reading, Paul is saying that women have authority over their own heads and get to decide what they do or don't do with them. Okay? The word uh, head in Greek, kephale, it can also mean, and actually, you know, maybe more often it means source or origin, Okay, um, And we have a few examples also in Hebrew, which is Paul's a Jew, um, of the Hebrew word rosh, which, uh, where, where it means something like that too, right? Now, you can find instances where it does mean leader or authority, but a lot more often it refers to something, something source or origin or the beginning, okay? So let me, let me give you a couple examples. In Psalm 111.10, uh, it's translated, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, kind of a common and important phrase in the Old Testament. You hear it in a lot of different places. But literally, if you're reading that in the actual Hebrew, the actual literal reading of it is, the fear of the Lord is the head, Rosh, of wisdom. Now, it doesn't make any sense for it to say the fear of the Lord is the authority of wisdom, right? You have to understand it as, as the beginning or source, right? That's what head means in that context. And another one is um, in the the. Rosh Hashanah. It's a Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word for New Year. It's a celebration of. It's like a, it's like the Jewish um, New Year. Literally, that day is called the head of the year. It's the first day of the year, but it, the word head is used to, uh, to kind of describe that it's the first day of the year. All right. So there's a couple of ways that we can understand head meant something different in that setting than what we might understand to mean today. And there are these three head distinctions in the passage. You have man and Christ, you have woman and man, and you have Christ and God. Head can either be understood as, you know, Christ, man, and God have some authority over man, woman, and Christ, or that man came from Christ, and woman came from man, and Christ came from God. And in the biblical story, that, is, that, that sense of source is certainly true when we think about it that way. So, all that to say, it doesn't necessarily mean it must be read that way, but sor- just because when we think of head a lot of times in our modern setting, we think of some sort of hierarchy authority, that doesn't at all mean that that's what Paul is talking about here, especially because he doesn't seem to be 
bringing that up in any way, right? Source is just as valid, if not more valid, a way to read that, right? And if you can't at least admit that that is at least a possibility, I think you're not being totally intellectually honest about the passage, all right? And the last note I want to make on this fifth is that regardless of what he says about head coverings in women, Paul still seems to think, in verse 15, that long hair is an appropriate substitute for head covering, okay? So it doesn't seem like he's advocating that women have to wear head coverings in a church service. Okay, I got all that out of the way. What's going on here? I will give you my best guess here in just a second, okay? I don't want to leave you here just saying, hey, it's a difficult passage, cool, let's, let's move on. But I do want to say this. I do think this is an important spot for us to at least point this out. We don't always have to have great answers to everything in the Bible in order to still understand it well and to still see it as authoritative or God's word or inspired by him or authoritative in our life and in the church in some way, okay? It's okay to not have total clarity and certainty on every passage in scripture, okay? I think it's good to remind ourselves of that sometimes. There is these kind of competing fundamentalisms, I think, that we find ourselves in the crossfire of a lot of times today, right? On the one side, there's a sort of Christian fundamentalism that says that we can always find easy black and white answers on every single passage in Scripture, right? And so, and so we should always expect to find that on any passage. And I just think that that's wrong. Like, just think about the different types of churches out there. Like, just think about the ways in which we do baptism a certain way at, our, at Res City. That's not the same as a church just down the street from us. And that's because we have dis- differences in how we read certain passages. We worship the same Jesus. We have uh, the same very core convictions, but we're not on the same page on everything. It's because there is some ambiguity sometimes. It's okay to admit that. Okay? On the other side of that fundamentalism, there's another kind that says if there's any nagging thread in Scripture whatsoever, okay, then it's supposed to all unravel for you. You can't trust any of it if you have any uncertainty about some passage, right? That, that the whole thing is supposed to fall apart. And so if you just admit that I don't have total clarity or perfect understanding of some passage, I'm, I'm really not sure totally what, what the point of this is. We have this pressure on us that says, well, you have to give the whole thing up then, Okay. And I'm just telling you, you don't have to pick one of those two sides. It's okay to live with some loose threads in the, in the Scripture, to wrestle through some complexities, to live in some gray. We, you don't have to jettison the core things you believe about faith. In fact, you can actually have a vital and thriving faith while just saying on some passages, I'm not totally sure uh, how to interpret this correctly. Okay? I just want to free you if that's kind of how you feel sometimes when you read the Bible. Okay? And so I'm going to give you my best guess, but I'm going to tell you I'm not 100% sure on this. Okay? And I'm actually okay if I found out I was, you know, I'm okay living in the tension of that. All right? Okay, so my take on this. A lot of scholars that you read and who that you read think the best way to understand the passage is this, and I think this makes a lot of sense. Based on the context and the usage of the word head in other places, I don't think it's really about submission or authority between the sexes at all, okay? Look at how Paul sums up all of this, all this dense stuff he said about heads and men and women and God and Christ here in verses 11 to 12. I think this can be helpful because it seems to be where he thinks everything he said is driving. This is verses 11 and 12. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. 
Now, in the creation story, if we go back to Genesis, man is created first, and the woman is taken out of his side, right? Woman in, in that story would not exist without coming out of the source of man. And, okay, so that's kind of one way in which we see men as the source for women. But what Paul is saying here is that men can exist now without being born of a woman, And there's this sort of uh, interdependency between men and women. They need each other to exist, that Paul is trying to encourage the church to not forget. There's something that's going on that is causing them to forget the interdependence that men and women have with one another. And the reality, Paul is saying, is that men and women are essential for each other's existence is life. And we can't forget that. We can't project something to the contrary. Now, who knows why that's the case, Right? We, we've talked a lot in this, um, as we've been look, going through this letter, that there's a lot of stuff going on in the Corinthian church where people seem to think their freedom or their rights could let them do all sorts of different things that are taking them in all these, what Paul thinks are, in some ways, very destructive paths for the church. And it seems that perhaps there is some, uh, there is something cultural about wearing a head covering or having long hair that was an important distinction between the sexes in Paul's time in the Corinthian church. And for some reason, some people are choosing not to do it. And it's important for Paul that that be remembered and that is communicated through these head coverings or the types of hair that men and women have. In the worship service, Paul wants to, especially in the worship service, Paul wants to make sure that this reminder that we have been made distinct and interdependent is being remembered. I think those distinctions still matter today, but they don't necessarily need to be communicated in the same way as it was in Paul's time, okay? So the takeaway for us, if there really is one that we can take from this, is that the distinctions between the sexes matter because we are interdependent on one another. We're made for each other, and we work together. We should not be trying to blur these distinctions and think of as one sex is maybe whole in and of itself. Together, we are essential, Okay? No one person can embody all of God's uniqueness that he has put into men and women both. Only God gets to create that. He brought woman out of a man, and he gives women the ability to bring man out of women. Okay? If this is the correct reading, I think it might have something to say to some of our discussions you know, today around gender and, and, and sex, sexual identity, and some of those kind of hot-button issues that are going on today. But I don't really think this is the place to launch into a conversation on that because there's no way we do justice to it fully, and I think that kind of deserves its own sermon. So I present this all cautiously, noting it's a difficult passage, and I'm just going to leave it there, and we're going to move on to the next part of, uh, of the passage here because I think this is actually much more clear-cut and there's a lot more for us to sink our teeth into, okay? So let, let's move into that. Rich and poor together, okay? This is 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 33. Once again, I'll read the passage for us here. <clears throat> Starting in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. This is sarcasm. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper, for some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? 
don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an arrangement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who drinks, who, sorry, who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some of you have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by God, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you are really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instruction about the other matters after I arrive. Okay, so some background on this would maybe be helpful. And thankfully, we actually have a better sense for the background on this than we do with the last passage. Um, the early church's worship gatherings, bit of an enigma to us. We don't actually have a ton of clarity for sure on what they look like, but we do know some of the main elements to it that sort of made it up together. And actually, the, the, book, the letter of 1 Corinthians is a really helpful place for scholars to try to reconstruct that because of passages like this. There was prayer. There's probably some hymns. There was some prophecy without actually getting into what exactly that looked like. Maybe some exhortation of, of scripture reading, what, what we now call the Old Testament, their Jewish scripture. And then a communal meal where the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist whatever you want to call it, took place as part of that, okay? And people didn't, you know, rent a building or own a special building that was kind of set apart just for the purpose of being a church, okay? People would meet in each other's homes for this. This is where this all was taking place, was probably in someone's um, apartment, essentially, or the courtyard of a house that someone owned. And the Corinthian church was socially stratified, okay? And the problem was that the official church actions, like their worship service, were uh, showing that these social stratifications were staying intact, okay? The people thought that God paid attention to the social worth valuations that existed on people outside the church. They were keeping those intact when the church gathered together. This is the real issue here, okay? And so you had some higher class, maybe white-collar wealthy people, and you had some lower class, blue-collar people. And the problem could have been a few different things, okay? Either it's that the white-collar people, they would show up early and being hungry because they didn't have to work as late as the blue-collar workers. They would show up early and they would just start eating the food on their own and get drunk on the wine. And then the rest of the people showed up who couldn't get there quite as early because they had to work later and there's no food for them left. All they are walking into is a bunch of drunk rich people. And Paul's like, hey, that's not cool. All right? Or maybe the class distinctions are causing the people uh, to uh, 
do the seating arrangement a certain way, right? So normally when hosting any old meal, the higher class people would um, be in a more comfortable setting or maybe even have a, a, you know, a special room assigned to them and then the lower class people would get a, a less comfortable spot. And um, the best food would go to the room where the higher class people were. And the, the scraps, if anything, would make their way to the people who were lower class. Perhaps even the higher class people were eating their own meals. They weren't even eating the, sh- the common food. They were just bringing really nice food for themselves and eating it together instead of with the rest of the people. Getting drunk on all this wine that they had while some people are getting basically none of it. Okay? Either way, whatever it is, the social differences are leading to fractures in the church. They're leading to the spiritual deprivation of the lower class. And I think most importantly, they're destroying any notion of unity or quality in the church in Corinth. Okay? And Paul makes note that some of the challenges or suffering that some people are going through may even be connected to their refusal to love the whole body. All right? And this is all especially true in this idea of communion. Okay? So let's talk about that a little bit. Think about the problem here by thinking of what it would look like for us to do this in our own setting and how we take communion today now. Okay? And let's think about it and contrast it with like, like an airport line. Okay? Um, you go to an airport and you're sitting and waiting for the uh, you know the airport to or the the, the um, airplane to board right and there's a call that goes out for the first class to come right now typically the first class people are the ones who have more money to to, to spend for it or whatever they have some special status and they get to go in first and they get to sit in the part of the airplane that's really nice and they have more uh, you know they get taken care of more than people in the rest of the plane so they get seated they get settled everyone makes sure they're comfortable and then they call the second class which typically makes up the people who are you know probably a little bit less wealthy they have to wait right communion by contrast we all come up together at the same time Right? There is no call for any certain group of people to get to come before the rest. We open up the communion table to everybody at the same time. And so invariably, yes, there are some people here who make more money than other people. There are some people who might have some identity markers that outside of the church would afford them more status, more worth in some way than other people. But here, we don't um, we don't invite anybody up based on those things. We're telling everybody, you come up together. We're intermingled with one another. We're opening up the table indiscriminately, and we all are eating from the same loaf of bread, no matter who we are, right? And it seems small and ordinary, okay? Like, you'd be forgiven for missing the significance of that. If you've never thought about this, okay, that, 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 that's understandable. But it's actually a really important reminder, something that we say, we proclaim to ourselves every single week, that we all come to Jesus in the gospel on equal footing. We all equally need God's grace. We're all united and put on the same level ground at the foot of the cross, Okay? Imagine that we were doing communion here and we were to say, we're going to run this like an airport. We're going to invite some people up. You know, whoever makes 100K gets to come up first. And then the next group, 75K plus, gets to come up. And then 50K plus, right? Or maybe we invited people 
you know, the men up first and then the women. Or maybe we said some, you know, you come up by your race or come up by your marital status or whether or not you have kids or something. Or we're going to invite whoever we think is the smartest person here, right? Or we're going to invite up the, the people who vote a certain way to come up first, right? These are the kinds of social valuations that we assign to each other and that we're taught to think of each other based off of, right? And I think we, we try to push back on seeing other people this way, but we can't help it, right? I was having a conversation with someone recently, and she was talking about some neighbors of hers who she thinks are just the greatest people. She, lo- she thinks they're so friendly, the nicest, some of the nicest people she's ever met. And then one day she was driving by their house, and she saw a yard sign for a political candidate that she just hates. And she was describing to me this real sort of crisis of conscience that she was having because now she felt like she had to assign some moral value to these people, um, but it was conflicting with her view of them, right? Now, this idea that she's supposed to look down on people who vote differently from her is not something she came up with. It's a, it's, it's, it's a type of societal pressure, a deeply ingrained value system that runs through our whole society, and she's being challenged by it. And it's something that we're told we should pay attention to in the world around us, okay? And as much as we try not to, we do this to each other. The truth is that these kinds of identity markers that we like to define people by, they're supposed to be left at the door when we show up to church on Sunday or to any other res city function. You're supposed to leave those at the door. That's the challenge that we have for you, right? And we're not saying that these types of things that make us who we are are not important unimportant, okay? I'm not saying that we should completely disregard them, but I am saying that the only status that you have at Res City is found in Jesus and the grace that he has offered us all equally, and we have all equally received if we've responded to it, okay? These things might matter when you leave the door and you hop back into the rest of the world, but we refuse to pattern our value systems in this church along the lines of the world around us, because God doesn't. I need grace just as much as you. And you, need, you people sitting over here need grace just as much as the people sitting over there, right? And that's really the only thing at the end of the day that matters. The foundational thing that matters here is that we've all been offered the same grace by God and we all have zero control over that. The point of the church is to be a place that recognizes how God sees us and adopts that view of each other into our own hearts and how we treat one another, including how we do things like communion. And so if we're just going to copy and paste what's going on in the world around us, we are truly going to be doing what Paul says to them, that we are going to be doing more harm than good. Let me end here by talking about something else that Paul brings up. Um, he, what he does is he, he, he tells them, hey, this is what communion is supposed to look like. And he, what he does is he actually re-quote, he's quoting to them something that we read in the Gospels when Jesus kind of gives his introduction to what communion is supposed to be. He actually quotes it back to them. All right, so there's something that's a part of that that he thinks is essential that they need to be reminded of. Okay? And I think it's this. It's these words of Jesus, essentially, that are the most important thing for Paul. Do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus says, do this all, all this communion stuff you're doing, do it in remembrance of me. 
Now, this letter, as we've been saying throughout this series this summer, is about holiness, okay? We're calling it Becoming Who We Are, which is a people who have been made holy by God, by by His grace being given to us, and embracing that identity and learning more and more what it looks like for us to live into that more and more on a daily basis, all right? That means that what it means to be holy is to be set apart for God, Now, this has to be reflected in our worship gatherings, too, where we don't come together to honor ourselves, to do things in remembrance of ourselves or for our own preferences, but to do all in remembrance of Jesus, to be set apart for him, okay? Which means that we can't make church just about us and our preferences, okay? We have all sorts of other places where we can do that, right? Um, And we're going to always be tempted to try to do that in the church too, okay? And so often the church does just become a place about the people that have gathered together in it, right? To produce good feelings maybe in the people that are there or to applaud themselves for being so much better than everyone else that's not at their church, right? Uh, For their wisdom, for not being like people outside of church or maybe in those other churches, right? Uh, to applaud the genius or the celebrity of someone that's on stage, right? Um, to, to put together that just something that everybody likes, right? Um, and and some, sometimes it becomes, it, it can feel like a big performance, right? Where we're just playing a part, you know? Like, Hi, I'm Joel, and, and this morning I'm going to be reading the script for the role of the successful business person or woman, right? The, the, the parent who has it all together, uh, the happy extroverted person, right? Who's not actually like that at home, but everyone thinks they are because that's how they act when they gather together. Um, the, the student who's got their future all planned out or, uh, you know, whatever it is. It's almost 9.30, it's time to get in character, right? When we do that, we're making it all about us, I think. And the challenge here is to not do that. Those church services that I used at the beginning were all super cringy. Right? But the problem, I think, ultimately, if we're looking for the real issue behind everything, was that these people were trying to make the service about them, not Jesus. Right? That's the worst part, I think. The, the pastor who forced his church to give 5K thought it would probably make him look great to be the pastor who had this vision and got his church to look so good in giving all this money. Right? And I'm sure that once he got that money raised, when he told the story of what happened on that Sunday morning, it sure made him look a lot better than what we read this morning on Twitter, right? The other, the, the other stories I think are all the same. The person who said everyone's going to get their eyesight healed wanted to look like the person who had the power to proclaim healing or something like that. And all those instances, what people are doing is making the church gathering about themselves. We can't do that, okay? The minute we forget that we're here to gather in remembrance of Jesus and not ourselves, that's the minute we start to work backwards, So come as you are. Jesus desires that we come as we are. That we don't play a part to try to look good, that we don't try to portray ourselves as something to make ourselves look really great, but to come as we are so that we can experience what makes Jesus so great and to be transformed and refreshed by that, both by meeting with God and in how we treat each other. Don't come so the attention is on you but so that's on Jesus. I think that's the big takeaway here for us from this passage. Now to close, what I want to do is 
we're going to enter into a time of communion. We do it every single Sunday. And what I want to do is I just want to reread what Paul says here. I want you to keep that on your mind as you come up and you take uh, communion and as we enter into a time of worship. Just dwell on that. Maybe ask yourself, is there some way that I have expected church to, uh, to be about me in some way? Something maybe subtle, something that is not at all intentional, but still something that is going on in your heart. Um, maybe it's, it's some other way that you're viewing people in the church. You're, there's some some way that you're assigning value to someone else, or maybe you're expecting it to be given to you in some way because of some value system that we should be leaving at the door when we enter here, okay? I don't know what it is. Let the Spirit seek you out as you come up and take communion, as you do this in remembrance of Jesus. Let his Spirit seek you out and maybe uh, challenge you in some way, or refresh your heart in some way as well. Instead of praying, I'm just going to read this here. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes.